0: Been a lot written in the past few years about, uh, the, about women and the w- role of women in the church, from recognizing that uh, we wouldn't hardly know about the resurrection of Jesus except for the women who met, uh, met him at the tomb, to uh, the role of women in the church throughout history and even today. And this morning, uh, our prayer, our morning prayer, comes from Enuma Okoro, who's a Nigerian American woman, a writer, and a speaker. Uh, who writes a lot about identity, culture, and the power of story. And she shares uh, a prayer uh, for a prayer for when we've lost our way again in a book called A Rhythm of Prayer that I'm reading through and uh, sharing in some other prayers with our congregation this this summer. And so I want to just invite you to bow your heads with me and uh, hear this prayer from Enuma Okoro as we come to God in our morning prayer. So please pray with me. Merciful God, sometimes it seems like we can't help but lose our way again and again. Our hearts long to follow you, but you know the way of the human heart. You know how our misguided longings, in our misguided longings, we veer off our journey toward you and begin to chart our own ways by false stars and distorted visions. Forgive us. Forgive us for all the times we are tempted by the hints of light instead of remaining steered by the assurance of your light. Forgive us when we forget that we are already claimed by you, loved by you, and purposed by you. Forgive us when we allow ourselves to shape and be shaped by voices and words that do not bring life, create life, nurture life, sustain life, or resurrect life. Merciful God, help us find our way again. Turn us back toward the road spotted with your other pilgrims, wayfarers, and repentant servants. Remind us that your way is the way of returning. Guide us by your Spirit and by your light. Make us remember the power of the Spirit within us. Make us remember the gift of our minds, our hearts, and our bodies that you have bestowed on us, that we would use them to honor your directives and the invitations you lay upon us. We know that our ways are not your ways, and we thank you for this. Help us to trust your ways over our ways. Remind us of your faithfulness as you forgive us, as you forgive our short memories. In your immeasurable love, grace, and mercy, in your wisdom, do not abandon us, Regardless of how often we lose our way, place our wounded hands on our broken hearts and turn us toward you, Lord of light, Lord of the life, Lord of resurrection. Amen. We turn to God this morning as we have the opportunity to hear his word read to us and uh, proclaimed to us once again. And so this morning, we are finishing up. We've uh, slogged, maybe it's felt like to you, really worked hard to get through almost three months of sermons in the Old Testament in Ezra and Nehemiah looking at rebuilding. And this morning, we're wrapping up that sermon series on rebuilding and looking at giving, which I might say tongue-in-cheek is everybody's favorite topic. Of course, it's not, is it? And so what what I want to do today is really two things. First, I want to talk for a few minutes about why giving isn't our favorite topic. And then second, I want to explore what biblical giving really is about. And it's not about making our budget. It's definitely not about the guilt that we often feel associated with conversations about giving. But what is it about? Why is it not our favorite topic and what is biblical guilt about? That's what we're looking at today as we wrap up this Rebuilding Sermon series. So I invite you to, <clears throat> excuse me, I invite you to uh, join me in reading the words are going to be on the screen or you can follow along uh, in your own Bibles. We're going to read 1 Nehemiah chapter 13, just a few verses, and then we're going to skip ahead to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord from Nehemiah. We've done all these things, rebuilt the temple and the walls and the altar and, and dedicated it all to the Lord. And celebrated the many ways in which God has been drawing His people back into relationship with Himself, and this is how the book of Nehemiah ends. Nehemiah says, "So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, and assigned them each their duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for the contribution of wood at, at designated times and for the first fruits. And that's what we're going to be focused on: that those first fruits." Remember me with favor, O oh my God. And then Paul picks up this remembering in Second Corinthians 9 and, and he calls the church in Corinth to remember this. He says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. And will enlarge your harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, Paul speaking of the apostles, through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So far, the reading of God's word. Some of you may know this story that in the mid 1990s, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates two of the richest men in the world, got together a group of billionaires from around the world. And together they committed that before each of them died, they were going to try and give away half of the wealth that they had accumulated. Now, we might alternatively either be impressed by that dedication, or if you're like me, maybe you're a little cynical of it. Well, they have lots of money anyway. I wouldn't, be, uh, I wouldn't be hard up with half of a billion dollars. That would be okay. But then I consider giving away half of what I have accumulated or what Kaylee and I have accumulated. And it's a lot harder, despite the fact that it's far less than half of a billion dollars. Far, far less. Far less. Did I say that? It's not so easy. It's, it's easy to give away other people's money, right? It's, it's easy to be judgmental of, of just how much or how little others are willing to give. But it's harder when it's our own. I read a statistic this past week in preparation for this sermon. And it was from 2017, so things may have changed in the last few years. But CBC did a... Uh, or or cited a survey that said the average Albertan gives $370 per year to charity. That's average, right? Half of us are roughly half higher and roughly half lower. Many of us, I suspect, could write a check for $370 and when the end of the year came, not realize that we missed it. How and what we give, how much, how little, how often, And where we give it, it shows us, if we're willing to look, just how much or or just what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves and who we are and and what the purpose of our money is. It also shows what we believe about our role in society as God's people. So, the two things we're going to talk about this morning. Why is giving not our favorite topic? And what is biblical giving really about? Well I think giving isn't our favorite topic in large part because it's so hard. It seems so easy as I said when it's other people's money but so difficult when it's our own. Money is one of the few things that we can really hold on to. We can we can literally hold it in our hands. Especially in COVID over the past year and a half, almost 2 years, in the midst of uh, increasing instability in our world, money is one of the few places where we feel like we can find stability, security. But I also think this, uh, giving is not one of our favorite topics because our discomfort shows that underlying the topic of giving is, shows just how much of an idol money has become for so many of us. I have two different memories of money uh, growing up. <clears throat> One is as a, as a family, as, as kids, we were on vacation somewhere and my parents gave each of us, I think it was a quarter, but it might have been a loony and it was to spend at the candy store at the campground we were staying at. <clears throat> and so they handed out a coin to each of us and they said, all right, kids, here's your, here's your quarter, here's your loony. go in there and spend it wisely. And I remember my brother looking up at my mom and saying, Mom, is a sucker wisely? (laughs) And I also remember going on some short-term mission projects as a teenager, going to the developing world, to South America, Central America, and seeing people who have so much less, who had so much less, even than I did, and seeing the satisfaction and the joy that they had. Both cases make me wonder about happiness, about satisfaction, and about joy. And it makes me long, in some ways, for that childhood innocence that, that the struggle of money would be wondering whether a sucker is, is wisely or if there's some better candy I could have. Or longing for satisfaction and for joy or, that, that people have despite the fact that they have so little money and so little else to their names. What I mean by money becoming an idol for us is what Andy Crouch, in his book about power that I referenced a few weeks ago, says about money, or about idols, excuse me. He says, Idols ask for more and more while delivering less and less until they ask for everything and deliver nothing. Idols ask for more and more while delivering less and less until they ask for everything and de- until they demand excuse me until they ask for everything and deliver nothing. Sorry, I try to get that right. Money is that way, I think, as we grow up. It seems like the more we have it and the more security we look for in it, the less we are able to spend it, the less we're able to be satisfied by it and the more we need to accomplish the goals that we have or the growing desires that we have. Just one example maybe to illustrate this. Kaylee told me this a couple weeks ago about a statistic she saw, and I think it was in the U.S., but I imagine it's Canada as well, that the average home has six video streaming services. So you can just quick do the math in your head, right, and see if you're above or below average. Six different video services, video streaming services. And still, if you have kids at home, I bet your kids will come to you and they will say, Mom, Dad, there's nothing on. I'm bored. Do any of you remember the days when streaming was still new? When it was promised that this was going to save you from that nasty cable bill every month. And now we don't have one bill but six. Now we don't have one thing to, to check into, but six or seven or ten. Streaming was promised to save us from bills, to give us exactly what we we're hoping for on demand, anytime. And yet, it's made all of us a little more frantic, a little busier with checking what's on where, and, and it's increased our desire, our, our need for more, right? Because the show I want to watch isn't available on this platform, so we have to buy another one. Idols promise more and more, ask for more and more, but deliver less and less, especially less satisfaction, less joy. Less less meaning until they ask for everything and deliver nothing. More to the point about money, in my former former congregation I had a college student who promised that he'd start tithing once he made his first million, not before. And he's he's become a very good businessman. It's been fun to watch him uh, succeed in many different things that he's put his hand to. But I tell you now what I told him then. I said, "Yeah, I'm not sure." Because I think as our income increases, our desires also increase, unless we temper them in some way. And when you make 100,000 dollars, you end up comparing yourselves to the people that have 200. And when you make a million, you start comparing yourself to the people that have two million, or maybe the people that have a billion. And on and on it goes. So what is giving in Scripture really about? Well, very simply, I think, Jesus, or our God in Scripture outlines giving for us because he wants us to be free from the idol of money. It's easy to say and harder to do, right? That if we just did what God told us to do, then life would be better. And even as we disagree about any number of things in Scripture that, that are referenced a few times, giving is consistently and loudly mentioned throughout Scripture. Just those two words of firstfruits, uh, which is literally the, the first fruits, right? Whatever's harvested first in the Old Testament agricultural word world, whatever's harvested first is given to the Lord, the first 10%. And tithing, those two words are mentioned 60 times. In the Old and New Testament. That's, that's a lot in the Scripture. That's a couple times in in almost every, or in many of the, of the books of the Old and New Testament. That's something that Scripture talks a lot about, but we're still uncomfortable with. We still rather not talk about it. We rather talk about things that the Bible talks about a lot less. So what is biblical giving really about? I think giving our first fruits does 3 things. It reminds us that we belong to God. It reorients our hearts back to God, and it rebuilds our communities. Giving our first fruits reminds us that who we are, that we belong to God and that everything we have is a gift from God. It's good for our sense of self to be grounded in our identity of who we are. And of all the things that we have, and all the things that we are are gifts to us. Or as Scripture talks about it, trusts to us, that we are stewards of what God has given us, not owners. When we talk, when when we frame giving in the language of idolatry, we are reminded that all of us and each of us are dependent on something or someone. None of us is an island. None of us has gotten where we are in this world only by our own strength and our own ability without depending on anyone or anything else. Giving first fruits, giving a tithe, which is just a modernization of the old old word for tenth, giving a tithe reminds us that who we are and what we have is a gift from God. It's a trust from Him and we can give it back to Him. Not because he's a miser and and demands that we give it back to him, but because he has more than enough to continue to bless us with. So we don't need to hold on to and grip tightly what he's already given us because he has promised that he'll give us more. So why should we be satisfied with what he has only given to us so far in our lives? God promises that He will provide for all our needs when we trust Him, when we give ourselves to Him. And that includes our money. So giving reminds us who we are. Second, giving reorients our hearts back to God. Giving isn't a pleasant thing, but as we do it repeatedly, and faithfully, giving becomes a discipline. And the author of Hebrews says that, like, like any discipline, uh, or, or like money, like any discipline, that no discipline seems enjoyable at the time. It's painful. Later on, however, it yields a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. That when we tithe as a discipline, like any other discipline, that God gives us a harvest. Now there's a increasingly popular uh, heresy, I would call it, called the prosperity gospel, that twists this kind of language and these kinds of words to make us think that if we give God ten dollars, that God will give us a hundred back. And if we give God a thousand, then he'll give us ten thousand back, and if we give him ten grand, he'll give us a million. But the prosperity gospel misunderstands not only what it means to be wealthy, but also misunderstands time. Wealth in Scripture and finances in in the eyes of God are never a private matter. As I said, it's a blessing. And blessings, all blessings are from God designed to be shared with the community not just hoarded for our own personal use or our own personal uh, growth or aggrandizement, the, the good of myself and my name and my reputation. Wealth is always an occasion for blessing the community. But also, the prosperity gospel misunderstands time. In Scripture, prosperity that does not last is not prosperity at all. Money doesn't last. We know this. We've all heard that you can't take it with you when you go, and yet we're happy to cling to it for as long as we're alive. But God desires, as I said, to free us from that idolatry, to remind us that we belong to him, and, and secondly, to reorient our hearts back to him so that we can see and we can know God's goodness For us. In giving back to God some, only some of what he has graciously given to us, we give ourselves the opportunity to see God provide for us and to celebrate God's provision for us again and again and again. Not just as individuals, not just as as small family units, but as a community, as the people of God. And that's the third thing that giving our first fruits does it rebuilds our communities. It's good not just for ourselves, it's not just good for our relationship with God, it's good for our world as well. This was God's design in the Old Testament. The Israelites, who were largely farmers, were supposed to give their first fruits every year. And so every year at the harvest time, the farmers would gather the first tenth of all their crops and they would bring them to Jerusalem and give them to God and to the temple and to the work of the Levites and the priests who were doing, uh, working on God's behalf. And the Levites would use that to sacrifice and to eat and to drink and some of it to sell to provide for their other needs. But that wasn't the end of first fruits in the Old Testament. The Israelites were instructed to have a Sabbath year. Every seven years. In other words, to take a break from the work of producing income and the work of producing crops that would would finance their lives. Not only so that they could learn once every seven years to rely on God fully, that they could learn to set aside some of their crops and harvest in the fifth and the sixth year to be enough to provide, but also so that the people in the community who were poor who had nothing, who in every sixth year had to glean along the edges of the field. In the seventh year, they would have free reign of anything and everything that grew. God's giving of our first fruits or God's command to give us, for us to give of our first fruits is good for the community. And all of this communal vision of, of Sabbath and, and tithing in the Old Testament culminates with the year of Jubilee. Every every 49 years or every seven times seven years. This was an opportunity to give back debts that had been owed. To forgive debts, right? To give them back. To free slaves. To return land. And every 49 years was perhaps once a generation in the Old Testament world. And can you imagine for a moment The joy of a child who was given, a young man or young woman, who was given the land that grandma and grandpa had to mortgage to pay their bills and who now had the ability to work for himself, for herself, and to produce for a future. Can you imagine the joy of a family that got their child returned to them, a child who they had 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 to sell into indentured slavery because they weren't able to afford to pay what was what they owed and now that child had a future and a, an identity back with their family can you imagine the joy that comes from simply giving back to god what all belongs to him anyway rather than trying to keep it all for myself for ourselves as with all things in scripture God God is less interested in the construction of buildings. He's less interested in the funding of projects. God doesn't need our money as if uh, the banks of heaven were running dry and we just need a a little bit bigger of an offering this morning so that we can reimburse or, or we can top up what God needs from us. God's desire is to fill us with joy and freedom, to give us peace not just the absence of war or conflict in our world, but the kind of universal flourishing that Scripture speaks about. Or everyone and everything in right relationship with one another, in harmony? Perhaps like me, you're longing for a life where you can see God's provision, not just in other people. Not just be impressed or, or cynical about what others are doing and how God is providing for others, or we can see God's provision for you, for your family. Maybe it's time to stop trying to provide everything for yourself and to give God and to give the people of God an opportunity to provide for you. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to feel the pinch, to step into the discomfort, and to see if God doesn't pour out so much blessing that you can't handle it all. That's what he says in Malachi 3. God says, "'Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this,' says the Lord." and see if I do not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Test me in this, God says, and see. So will we do it? Will we test God? He invites us to. At the start of this sermon series, I told uh, those of you who are here a story about growing up and playing basketball in high school. And I had a coach who said, if you want to learn to dunk the basketball, what you need to do is you need to go home and find a, find a set of stairs. And you need to balance. He didn't say that. I need to balance. And you just need to go all the way down and all the way up, 100 times a day. And then you'll be able to dunk after, you know, after a few weeks. And I told you that I never did it. And so I never knew if it was true or not. God says, Test me and see. Many of us have spent our lives not taking God at His word. And so we're not able to see. We never know if it's true or not. We have a lot to lose if we tithe. We have some security, we have some money that might go down the drain some other things that we'd like to do with that money that we're not going to be able to do if or when we tithe it to the Lord. But we have so much more to gain. Let's come to God in prayer. Father God, we celebrate as your people that you desire us to have peace in our lives. Your peace that passes understanding. That you desire us to have peace in our relationship with you, that we would know you and be near to you, and also peace in our world, not just the absence of conflict, but real, meaningful, right relationship, each person with another, everyone with everything. God, we're here in worship this morning because we haven't figured it all out yet. If we had, we could spend this time better. We could go for a walk. We could do something else with our time, but we're here because we need to be reminded of your forgiveness that we talked about earlier in the service, of your love for us and your plans for us, your ways that are not our ways, but that are higher and better than our ways. So Father, we ask that you would meet us this morning. Speak with your spirit the words that we need to hear. Encourage us to give our money, our time, our energy, ourselves to you. To entrust what you have already given us back to you and to see what you will do with it so that we might celebrate your provision for us in every area of our lives. All these things we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.